This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, October 31st, 2020. Episode 84, Medieval True Crime 1, Concerning Miraculous Justice for a Mutilated Priest. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And once again, we've arrived at our Halloween anniversary episode. And it seems like it wasn't that long since our last one. Though, at the same time, last Halloween feels like an eternity ago. This Halloween episode uh, will be a little different from previous ones. Rather than being a standalone fright fest, it will be the first of a little themed miniseries on the subject of medieval true crime. Though, the true part of it perhaps needs some qualifiers and scare quotes and an asterisk, uh, at least as far as today's text is concerned. But really, shouldn't the true in true crime, even in its common 21st century usage, come with some of those same qualifiers and hedges? For those of us in podcasting, uh, and I'm sure for many of you trend-savvy listeners, the boom in true crime content over the last few years has been impossible to ignore. Uh, Though true crime podcasts have been around for ages, uh, this boom is generally credited to the first season of Sarah Koenig's podcast, Serial, whose first episode came out in October of 2014 uh, and has been credited with bringing podcasting into the mainstream media and mass market. That's one of those narratives that undoubtedly has some truth to it, uh, indeed, probably a lot of truth to it, um, which I'm sure is oversimplifying and omitting other factors and corollary narratives. Uh, After all, it's the same year and month that this podcast you're listening to debuted, so who's to say what's really responsible for the boom in podcasting? I know from Twitter uh, that some of you who listen to this podcast are also fans of true crime as a genre, and that makes perfect sense to me. There's a shared emphasis on the combination of the macabre with the documentary. Uh, There's also a concern in common about deriving entertainment from real suffering, uh, an ethical question for both producers of this kind of content and listeners. That issue is particularly sharp, I think, for true crime that covers recent cases, where you also have to consider the lives of actual survivors and relatives whose trauma you're either narrating or consuming— My life is a little easier with this show, uh, just because of the distance of time and the fuzziness surrounding the quote-unquote reality of many of our sources. But the concern is still there, uh, and wrestling with it was one of the reasons I took so long in making this summer's episode about the persecution of the Jews during the Black Death. My own interest in true crime comes with some reservations. Uh, I certainly do consume it, though mostly in the form of TV forensic procedurals, shows primarily focused on the investigative aspects of crime. Uh, At least, that's my main engagement with contemporary crimes. I haven't gotten as much into the more storytelling-oriented types of shows, uh, partly because I do still worry about that aura of the tabloid that hangs there. Um, Even though I know there are good shows, podcasts, and YouTube channels that have found a way to navigate that territory responsibly. What I do consume more regularly in the genre is historical crime. And my self-serving explanation for this is that the voyeurism inherent in the genre feels perhaps less lurid and more educational with the passage of time. I am in the club of people fascinated by the Jack the Ripper murders, a club that is long-standing and time-honored, 
but which, if I say so myself, is one of those that has a certain touch of skeeviness to it. It's an interest I wouldn't necessarily broadcast to all and sundry at a dinner party, for example, but it is, nonetheless, one of those things I could name as one of my specialist subjects in a trivia competition. That said, my interest in the Ripper case is perhaps a bit atypical, in that I don't really care about all the competing theories of the killer's identity. Uh, I can't even identify a favorite suspect, which you'd think would be one of the membership qualifications for the Ripperologist Club. The best I can say is that I'm profoundly unconvinced by pretty much the whole slew of high-society conspiracy theories, royal or otherwise. So, if I'm not in it for the mystery, what then? Well, I think it's a reason why a lot of people are drawn to true crime narratives, even when there's very little mystery to be solved. And that's because a shocking crime and the investigation and the documentation that accompanies it, both the official documentation of law enforcement and the writings and reflections of people looking on, this body of record creates an amazing snapshot of a very precise event and moment in time. And that's why cases from decades or centuries ago grab me in particular. I'm less interested in how much medical or anatomical knowledge the killer may have possessed and more interested in reconstructing the back alleys of Whitechapel and seeing all the names of the women giving statements about the strangers they saw on the street on a particular night. I'm kind of joking, but not really, when I say that I'm more interested in knowing the work routine of Louis Dimeschutz, who first stumbled across Elizabeth Stride's body in Dutfield Yard when he was out driving a costermonger's barrow at 1am, than I am in knowing what psychological demons drove the killer to murder Stride in the first place. I'm entranced by the photographs we have of the inside of Mary Kelly's little rented room, not because I want to try to decipher and dissect the horrific mass of gray shapes that comprises her mutilated body, but because I want to see what the furniture is, what's on the walls, what belongings can be recognized, which isn't much, by the way. For a long time, I wanted as a hobbyist arts project to make my own little village of miniature model buildings, and I'll confess that for several years, my plan was to uh, recreate some of the key locations in the Ripper case, uh, maybe with some other pre-20th century cases like the infamous Red Barn or the stores involved in the Ratcliffe Highway murders. Though, I can say I thankfully eventually gained enough clarity on this topic that I can see how such a project uh, might be perceived as being in bad taste, and I never pursued it. Anyway, I think this medieval true crime miniseries will appeal to a similar kind of curiosity. Our first installment, here on Halloween, blends the quotidian detail of the police blotter with the supernatural flourishes of the legendary. We're about to hear another item from The Miracles of Henry VI, a collection of miraculous events, mostly cures and rescues from various disasters, attributed to the intervention of the spirit of King Henry. All these tales were collected in the last decades of the 15th century as evidence to be presented in support of his canonization as a saint, a canonization which never came about. We've heard from this collection once before, in episode 59, concerning some children miraculously saved from fatal accidents, and I encourage you to go back to that episode if you'd like more information about the origins of this source. Uh, one of the things miracle collections like this one help illustrate are the little details of daily life that more official histories and medieval literary tales often omit. 
In episode 59, these were of how childcare worked, or didn't work, as the case may be. Today's story maybe doesn't give us quite so much in terms of specificity of daily life, but it does feel like it captures a specific moment in this community's history, and raises far more questions than it answers. And compared to other texts we'll get in this series, it's one of the few that actually shows any interest in the offender's mind. So, without further ado, here's what befell a priest of the name of William Edwards, vicar of the parish church of Hollington in Sussex, in the early morning hours as Halloween passed over into All Saints Day in 1488, exactly 532 years ago tonight. in these times three men dwelling in the parish of this vicar, who, moved upon I know not what occasion, but driven, I will say, by a most malignant spirit, joined in a cruel plot against the author of their salvation, the physician and guide of their souls, with fox-like cunning. They aimed at depriving him of sight and speech, or even of life itself. And so, to put the crown on their guilt, To accomplish in full measure the intended effect of so horrible a crime, they chose a day of great popular devotion, the Feast of the Virgin Mary and All Saints, which is celebrated by the Universal Church on the 1st of November. On that day, when the said priest, rising at early dawn, was preparing himself to go to church and celebrate the divine office, but was still at home, all but dressed and prepared to go out, Satan's emissary, one of the three aforesaid, who surpassed his fellows in the cunning of his deceit and in daring, comes up to the priest's house, knocking on the door repeatedly. And so, coming in peaceably, as falsely claiming friendship, he bade him forth. "'Ho there, master,' said he. "'Where are you? Why this delay? Do you mean to be late coming to church today? What, still asleep when the bell has gone twice and all the people await your coming?' but here am I, I will go along with you. When he heard this, the priest was glad, and his face lighted up. It was the shepherd recognizing the sheep's voice, but little knowing that the lamb's fleece hid a wolf. So answering quietly, he says, I am coming, my son. Wait but a moment. I will go my way with you when I am girded. It was, to be sure, but six o'clock, and day was not dawned yet. He then, who hated the light, and had claimed to himself the powers of darkness, pressed hard upon him and besought him to come out quickly, like a crafty conspirator that eagerly thirsted for his blood. Even a little delay was loss and weariness to him. So after a while, both set forth and went along together. But the priest went first, and the other followed, the one all innocence of heart, the other villainously goading himself on with the pricks of mad hatred. So when they had got halfway across a common they must pass through on their way, which was much overgrown with shrubs of broom, the murderer, sure that his guilty accomplices were lying in wait among the bushes nearby, 
suddenly snatches a cord out of his sleeve and puts it about the priest's neck, and so, throttling him, throws him to the ground. Whereupon the two villains leaped out of their hiding place, and, exulting in this their furious onslaught and beastly rage, ran like ravening wolves upon the shepherd. And forthwith, for they had tools to their hand for the purpose, made of wood in a strange and horrid fashion, and toothed like a saw, they drew out the priest's tongue and cut it off by the roots, as well as they might reach it with the best of their effort and of their craft. Yet, alack for shame, they could not even so glut their fury and let be, but devising with devilish intent a new and unknown form of torture, they pricked his eyeballs with needles till they had altogether made an end of his power of sight. The priest, so misused by the bloody hands of these villains, in the midst of this bitter suffering and danger of approaching death, with contrite and humble heart, devoutly entrusted his innocence and all care of himself to God alone with his glorious mother Mary, and, moreover, that most pious and most blessed helper of the oppressed, King Henry. So while they tortured him, so while he lay tortured, did he, as like to die. Meanwhile, this crime compassed, what, think you, did those sacrilegious wretches do? Why, they leaped down secretly and took to their heels, well knowing that though the priest might perhaps enjoy a life of misery, yet could he never betray them by word or writing, since they were well assured that he lacked the means for both. What then? Feigning a pretense of love, so that they, who deserved the utmost punishment, might yet remove from themselves all ground for ill suspicion, they came to the church door, and forthwith crying aloud with woeful voices, made it known that the vicar lay in the fields, slain by robbers." and that they moved the hearts of all with no little consternation and grief, for there were many come together there to honor the feast, and all went out into a rout, with no time lost, all cries and groans, and so came to the place, and found it even so as the villains had told them of their own misdeed. Yet no one was moved with any suspicion of them. Rather, all three seemed true sons and sheep of Christ's fold, suffering with their shepherd. But what need to say of this, or what need to wonder? For these three wolves in sheep's clothing stood amongst them, groaning louder and more than all the rest. Lo, now a wonder. I say, for he who, more insensate than his fellows, had done the very deed with his own hand, rushed into the midst, with a crying and a lamentation inconsolable, and in the hearing of all spoke to the priest as follows. Woe is me, my father! Why did I live to see you thus today? Why did my birth bring me to such a day as this? Oh, that I could behold you with an easier mind! What gallows bird, I say, has done this sacrilege? And as he pursued these accents of lament, Behold, a wonderful thing, which could not be believed, but that the power of Almighty God alone brought it to pass. At the same instant when he had ceased speaking, the priest found power both to see and to speak, and that though he had not the means to do either, and was thought all but dead already. He saw then his torturers. 
He looked upon the shameless murderer that fawned upon him with his hypocrisy, and soon, in the hearing of all, by miracle and not by any natural power, this utterance came from his lips. You know best, said he. You are the guilty man. You and the two villains that stand there beside you, this is your own doing. And at that, their guilt so suddenly discovered, blushed and was tongue-tied. And so, apprehended by a speedy rush of the bystanders, they were sent to prison to pay there the worthy penalty of their treason. Although their wickedness betrayed by so notable a miracle was now brought to naught, yet our priest was carried home half-dead from the wounds of this dangerous assault. The flow of blood from his mouth and his eyes would not cease, and until midday he was mourned for dead. Nor did he himself think he had anything but a painful death to look for. Yet, not forgetting his glorious patron, he bent a coin in his honor, binding himself by a strict vow to make a pilgrimage to his tomb at Windsor, did he but live. The vow thus made, all the flow of blood stopped instantly, and though for some time afterwards he was bowed down with unbearable pain and kept alive with little food enough, yet from that time on he felt relief and was strengthened not in hope only, but in health. And not only did he find miraculous power of speech, but he enjoyed his old power of sight, though in one eye only, using no assistance of human art. So there you have the tale of how William Edwards survived a brutal assault and managed to bring his attackers to justice, with the aid, as he claimed, of King Henry VI. The modern translators of this miracle collection note that the actual story continued from where we left it, uh, but they only give us this epilogue in a summary. Uh, what they tell us is that eventually Edwards was treated by a doctor and, as a result, lost the sight he still had in his one good eye and he only got it back by yet another appeal to King Henry. This touches a theme we saw a bit of in that previous episode with Henry's miracles. In that one, we had one story in which the author deliberately withheld praise for the human who jumped into the pool under a mill's water wheel to rescue a trapped child, attributing his success entirely to the divine power and denying the person any credit or agency. And here, when the priest seeks aid from a human physician, he gets worse and eventually finds a cure from God alone via the sainted king. So this message recurs. Don't trust in human action and capability. Trust only in God. A message that sadly still seems to guide some people's approaches to both personal and national responses to pandemics, for example. That said, it's not entirely unreasonable to suppose that 15th century medical interventions especially in the case of a patient whose overall health has stabilized, uh, meaning he's living with blindness in one eye, but he's not gushing out blood from a laceration or fighting off gangrene in a limb or some other life-threatening condition. Uh, in such a case, purely elective surgeries by the practitioners of the age were probably at least as likely to make things worse 
as they were to make things better or even just have no effect at all. I don't know if the original text goes into any detail about what Edward's doctor did to treat him, but if it was another duck excrement poultice, I'm not surprised the patient experienced a negative outcome. In fact, here's perhaps the most horrifying text I could give you for Halloween, uh, depending on your level of squeamishness. Here's what our favorite medieval surgeon, Guy de Chaliac, prescribes for wounds of the eye. Wounds of the eyes are to be feared by reason of the sight and because the eyes are near the brain. I have several times seen, which Bienvenutus also attests, that destruction of the optic nerves and cataracts follow after wounds of the parts surrounding the eyes. What shall I say then when they are in the substance of the eye itself? It is certain that if the humors flow, destruction of the eye and of its action will follow. And if Galen, in the fourth of the maladies and symptoms, saw a child having its eye pierced with a bodkin cured, from whence the aqueous humor had set out unchecked, this was one of those things which rarely happen, and yet may be according to nature. Notwithstanding that Rabbi Moises, as if mocking Galen, says that this was one of his marvelous stories. Because the spermatic parts in children are each day being seen regenerated. The treatment of an eye, according to Jesus, is to prevent any matter flowing from the eye. If there is no blood from it, let one apply a collier, or eye wash, made of thuja and a little camphor to it. If there is an issue of blood, let it be treated with bloodstone, because this has great virtue for that, and put over the eye egg albumen, and let it be bound firmly with a bandage. Bienvenutus, for this purpose, greatly praises the yolk of eggs beaten up and thickened in a mortar in the form of an unguent and he calls this medication a gift given from God. Concerning that which has entered into the eye, if something has entered into the eye which wounds it and causes pain and hurt, such as smoke, dust, gravel, straw, or corn on, Jesus prescribes that some woman's milk or soft water be distilled in the eye, because that cleans it and extracts anything which has fallen into it. If it does not set out from it, reverse the lids. If you wish it, Wrap a stylet or your finger with a fine linen cloth and clean. If it still persists, let it be removed with forceps and distill in the eye woman's milk which nurses a girl. In the case of the eye being bloodshot on account of wounds and blows, Jesus praises for it the installation of milk which nurses a girl and egg albumen and dove's blood taken from under the wing. It is very good to plaster the eye with the pith of bread steeped in wine. If it does not cease or resolve, distill in the eye a mixture of aqua ami and salus gemi, fomenting the eye with water and a decoction of barley and dry hyssop. If it does not then cease, take clear water in which some pulverized arsenic has been placed and put it into the eye. Yeah, so, if the dove's blood in human milk doesn't do the trick, try some arsenic. Though, I'm being facetious. Uh, there are, of course, actual medical uses of arsenic compounds. Uh, indeed, its name comes from the Greek for potent. 
Since the classical era, it's been used for treating ulcers, skin conditions, and syphilis. And in modern medicine, it's still central to certain cancer treatments. That said, I don't know that putting it into the eye is a particularly efficacious application. Oh, and by the way, the Jesus mentioned there is a reference to the 10th century Arab physician and eye specialist Ali ibn Isa al-Kahal, known in medieval Europe as Yezu occultist, since Yezu, Jesus, Jesus was the counterpart to Arabic Isa. But back to the case of Vicar Edwards. I find the style of this narrative rather interesting. It's remarkably fleshed out and even literary for an ostensibly factual account. Generally, for the purposes of this canonization proposal document, more baldly expository narration is usually all that was required. There's no particular reason why this story couldn't just say, the priest was met as he was going out of the church by one of the plotters who fell upon him when they came to a deserted stretch of the road. But that's not what we get. We get dialogue. We get an evocative description of the desolate, overgrown place where the assault happened. Uh, And a little spoiler alert, our next set of text will be medieval coroner's reports, and we are not going to get anything close to this kind of narrative detail in those, uh, though they're fascinating in their own special ways. In this story, we get a rhetorician's extensive elaboration on an exemplar, a model tale designed to elicit sympathetic emotion in the audience. And it puts us not only in the head of the victim, but also in that of the attacker, who is so ramped up with their lust to get to the violence that they struggle to maintain their mask of feigned friendship. The psychology here does have a kind of pre-modern simplicity to it. I'm teaching a Shakespeare course at the moment, and so I've had occasion to think about how, for every morally complicated anti-hero Shakespeare has, there's someone who is simply a villain, who claims no other motivation for their actions than sadistic pleasure in causing others suffering. For every Macbeth, there's an Iago or an Aaron. Of course, in a way, there's also a very modern psychology you can find here, which is the psychology of psychopathy or sociopathy, terms whose precise definitions and distinctions continue to be a site of contention and debate. But whatever the specifics, the general notion is that you do have some people who are motivated not out of a repressed trauma or the other nuanced causalities of psychoanalysis, but whose behavior is antisocial and predatory simply by nature. Perhaps as though whatever system in the brain produces empathy and one's own interior voice of social responsibility is undeveloped or just missing, allowing the more primal instincts for domination and self-preservation and predation to rule. For our medieval writer, these traits are satanic, but he doesn't go so far as to allege demonic possession or really even temptation, uh, not overtly at least. The chief plotter may be called an emissary of Satan, but his malevolence still feels very much his own. It is his desire to bring pain to this person who has done nothing to him at all, who trusts him, but whom he can simply exert his own power over. And that kind of apparently unprompted sadism, and this acting out of what does feel like an obsessive fantasy, something long-planned and premeditated, but not retaliatory or motivated by anything other than the sheer desire to do it, this psychopathic psychology 
does resonate with our modern thoughts about certain kinds of killers. What's also curiously modern is the mystery of how the singular psychopath is able to recruit accomplices who are not themselves psychopaths, but nonetheless fall completely under the psychopath's sway. And for this mystery, our medieval writer has as few answers to offer us as most modern forensic psychologists. Another little echo of modern serial killers here is the detail of the special-made wooden tools that the attackers have constructed for use on the priest, a description reminiscent of the torturous wooden teasel described in the account of the killing of William of Norwich, uh, which was allegedly inserted into the victim's mouth. I don't know if these are idiosyncratic torture implements or if they're drawing on some wider practice of, say, state-sponsored torture, uh, or even something maybe from the criminal underground. Despite the themes of this podcast, I have not actually studied medieval torture methodologies in any depth. Uh, so if one of you out there knows more on the subject, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can tweet at me, at MDT Podcast. And we'll close out our look at this story with a brief examination of a less gruesome practice, which is bending coins. Uh, this is a devotional practice well attested in archaeology, but perhaps less so in literature, uh, at least beyond very casual references like we have in this story. Um, my references here are a pair of dissertations, one by Richard Mark Kelleher and the other by Siri Holbrook. You can get full references for them on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Coin bending is actually a kind of folk magic that has analogs and presumably antecedents in pagan practice, the ritual killing of an object in order to sacrifice it to the gods or to a local guardian spirit. It's common to find at the bottom of sacred pools and wells of the Roman era collections of deliberately bent and broken metal objects. In medieval England, coins were bent as an external sign or token of making a vow to a saint particularly a promised pilgrimage to the saint's shrine, where the bent coin would be left to mark the fulfillment of the vow. The bent coin dies, as it were, as a form of usable currency, but will retain its power as a token, as divine currency, if you will. This vow-making is one of three devotional sacrificial contexts for coin bending. Uh, coins were also bent, as recorded in some of the other miracle stories of Henry VI, uh, over the sick or those who are on death's door, again, as a physical external complement to invoking the aid of a saint. You also find coins being bent in moments of extreme danger, such as by travelers fearing shipwreck during a storm at sea. In both of these latter two cases, the vow is implicit in the call for the saint's aid, and provided a cure is accomplished or the danger is avoided, then the coin bender is expected to eventually make the pilgrimage and deposit the coin at the saint's shrine. Coin bending is a good fit for these moments of sudden and unexpected duress, since a coin is something you're likely to have in your pocket or purse, and if you've ever handled a medieval coin, you'll know that they're generally quite a bit lighter and thinner than modern coins, and can be bent in half, folded into a half-moon shape, without too much effort. So it's a gesture that can be done without any real planning or preparation. But even if created in an impassioned moment, their significance was lasting, it was considered particularly bad to lose such a coin and never to give it away or spend it. The bent coin is the one meant to be given to the saint, uh, not some substitute coin. 
Archaeologists have even found bent coins with textile fibers in the crease, indicating that they were sometimes strung on string or ribbon to be worn around the neck or otherwise kept on the body. They also show up in burials, which could mean many things. Uh, Coins have been bent specifically to be placed on the body, um, and beyond votive use, they also functioned as general good luck charms or protective wards against witchcraft. So they may have been left with the body as protection against evil, but the burial may also indicate that the bent coin was the possession of the dead person who had not yet fulfilled their vow, and the taboo against taking the saint's coin was strong enough that it went into the grave with the body rather than being reclaimed by the survivors. And we should remember, a bent coin perhaps can't be easily spent, but unlike modern composite currency, a good medieval coin could be melted down and restruck fairly easily. So bending a coin only put an obstacle in the way of its re-entering circulation. Uh, It didn't take it out entirely. So the fact that they were left with the body rather than being recycled does suggest that those preparing the body had some fear of drawing a saintly curse if they took the saint's pledged property. Coin bending continued in other modes after the Middle Ages. Uh, In the early modern period and up into the 19th century, we find bent coins being used for a different kind of devotion. Uh, They were exchanged as love tokens. And the idea of sacrificing a coin is, of course, carried over into wishing wells and throwing coins into fountains. Uh, Again, a practice that goes back to the classical age. But bending the coin is also an element of the British phenomenon of the coin tree, a variant of the wishing tree in which coins are hammered into the bark. Old coin trees can have so many coins inserted and hammered flat into them that they almost look like they have dragon scales. I encourage you to Google image search for coin trees and check them out. They are pretty cool. And finally, to round out our Halloween anniversary episode with one more random piece of macabre trivia, Here's a brief account of some real-life vengeance from beyond the grave. This is how the Pictish Earl of Moray, Melbricta Ton, or Melbricta the Tooth, or Tusk, named after a tooth that stuck out of his mouth, managed to kill the man who killed him, as recorded in the Orkney Inger saga, here translated by G.W. Dacent. Earl Sigurd made himself a mighty chief. He joined his fellowship with Thorstein the Red, son of Olaf the White and Aud the Deep-Minded, and they won all Caithness and much else of Scotland, Moray, and Ross. There he caused to be built a burg southward of Moray. These two agreed between themselves to meet, Sigurd and Melbricta Toothy, the Scot Earl, that they should meet and settle their quarrel at a given place, each with forty men. And when the day named came, Sigurd thought to himself that the Scots were faithless. He made them mount eighty men on forty horses. And when Melbricta got to see them, he said to his men, Now we are cheated by Sigurd, for I see two feet of a man on each horse's side, and the men must be twice as many again as the steeds that bear them. Let us now harden our hearts, and let us see that each has a man for himself ere we die. And they got ready after that. And when Sigurd saw their plan, he said to his men, Now half our force shall get off horseback and come on them in flank when the battle is joined, but we will ride at them as hard as we can and break in sunder their array. And so they met, and there was a hard battle, and not long ere Melbricta fell and his followers, 
and Sigurd calls the heads to be fastened to his horse's cruppers as a glory for himself. And then they rode home and boasted of their victory. And when they were come on the way, then Sigurd wished to spur the horse with his foot, and he struck his calf against the tooth which stuck out of Melbricta's head and grazed it, and in that wound sprung up pain and swelling, and that led him to his death. And Sigurd the Mighty is buried under a howe at Ekjalsbaka. Guttorm was the name of Sigurd's son. He ruled the lands one winter and died childless. So, it's not exactly a zombie bite, but a dead man's bite and the subsequent infection does bring down Sigurd the Mighty. And that brings us to the end of our sixth anniversary episode. Not a particularly auspicious one this time around. I recognize it's been our least productive year in terms of episode count, though I'd like to think that our plague episodes at least had an above-average level of quality. The reasons are still fundamentally new job adjustments and having to prepare all new course materials for nearly every class I've been teaching for these first three semesters in the job, and of course the pandemic on top of that, and I suppose that accounts for it. But I am coming to the point where I'll be able to start reusing those course materials and consequently have more evening time available in the upcoming year. So I'm hoping we can get back to at least a monthly episode, if not all the way back to the old goal of episodes every two weeks. I do want to thank all of you who have continued to support the show through Patreon, even when the release schedule became so irregular. And I'd like to welcome and thank in particular the new patrons who joined up since last episode. So thank you, Magnus, George, Catherine, Prolegomena, Kate, Jade, Cassandra, Claire, and Ian. I feel like it was a real act of faith to donate when I've kept you waiting so long for new content. Seven, though, is a lucky number across many cultures, so here's to year seven of Medieval Death Trip. May it be a good one. Goodness knows, I don't have any shortage of material or ideas, it's just been a shortage of time and health and wakefulness this past year and a half. And to all of you, here's hoping this Halloween keeps the evil spirits from your door, and maybe that'll have a lasting effect to keep them out until next All Hallows' Eve. Heck, even if we can just hold them back till summer solstice, that'll be an improvement over last winter. If you want to become a patron, you can do that at patreon.com, search there for Medieval Death Trip, or go directly to patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. You can also tweet to me at that similar-sounding handle, at mdtpodcast, or write me an email addressed to patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And at our website of that same name, you can find more information, including bibliographic references for this and every episode of the show. I'll be back with more true crime next episode with tales from the medieval coroner's rolls. Until then, be careful who you walk to work with in these early morning hours, though maybe daylight savings time will help with the darkness of those hours a bit. And thanks for listening.